Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. My name's Simon. I'm one of the ministers here. I'm delighted to be sharing with you this morning, those who are here and those online. Let's pray, and then we'll tuck in. Lord, thank you that you are a speaking God, and thank you that you are a living and active God. Thank you that you interfere in our lives, and you make them more beautiful. We pray, Lord, today that by your Spirit, you will draw near to us, interfere in our lives, Lord. Make them more beautiful and use us to introduce you to others. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please do turn to Acts chapter 3. And uh, as Stephen said, we're working through a few uh, key events in the early church which are foundations for us in the life of the church here in the 21st century. And our theme today is the beauty of God at the gate beautiful. Encountering the beauty of God at the gate beautiful. Recently, Alice Roberts, who is a brilliant and engaging professor of public engagement in, society, in science, in society, uh, based at the University of Birmingham. She's also the head of the humanists in Britain. She tweeted this, do any Christians actually believe in miracles like this? She was talking about Jesus turning water into wine. She said, I mean, really believe, because you know, it seems just a bit unlikely. And then someone responded to her tweet, and they said this, when you are in Oxford on a Sunday next, pop into St. Aldate's Church, and you will come across real miracles pretty soon. I don't know who it was who posted that, and I was fascinated by that comment and that perception of the life here at St. Aldate's. I look forward to seeing Alice Roberts here. <laughs> Let me just offer a few presuppositions before we look at this text. We're thinking this morning about healing. And firstly, the truth is that in my 23 years, and it has been that long, and I know some of you think it's been even longer, my 23 years here at St. Aldate's, we have seen amazing miracles. In particular, we have seen people's lives completely transformed by Jesus. We've seen them turned around. We've seen joy enter lives where there was great sadness, hope enter lives where there was great despair. We've seen marriages turned around, family life turned around, situations turned around. We've seen miracles. But healing miracles, sadly, not enough. I think I've buried more people than miracles I've seen. And then secondly, following Jesus does not inoculate us against the fracture of life in our broken world. The past few weeks, 
of my time has been taken up with my own parents, both of whom have been in hospital, both seriously ill. Age is no respecter of persons. And following Christ doesn't inoculate us against the brokenness, the fracture, the dis-ease in our society. And here today in this room and watching online, there will be many who are really going through it, who are really suffering, who know pain in their bodies, who know torment in their minds, who are filled with despair and just crying out to God, but it seems that God at the moment hasn't responded in the way that you'd like. That is a reality. And then thirdly, God is at work in our world bringing healing and wholeness. He's doing it through the medical professions, I thank God for the hospitals that my parents have been in in the last month where they've been cared for and the breakthroughs in science have actually eased their suffering. And then, of course, just in these last few months, the near miraculous breakthrough with the uh, finding creation of four vaccines to deal with this global pandemic. I had my second jab this week. Thank God. That's God's grace and his gifts abroad in the world. And then lastly, by way of introduction, the greatest healing is salvation, being saved, being rescued, being redeemed, being put right with God. When we trust in Jesus his death for our sins, his resurrection, when we put our hope in him, he enters our life and he guarantees us an eternal life with him in a whole new body. I'm going to have a trim one in the next life. It's on order. Bit trimmer, just a bit. A new body fit for life forever in heaven where there is no sickness and no sighing and no sorrow. No fears, no tears, no more wounded years. We'll be with him and we'll be whole. What a beautiful thing we have to look forward to. All those things by way of introduction. But let's dig into the text. This is an amazing passage. And in it we encounter the beautiful God at work at the gate beautiful. Firstly, though, we see a painful life at the gate beautiful. We see someone really suffering. In verse 1, it says, The apostles Peter and John going to the temple at the set hours for prayer. At that moment, a man lame from birth was carried in. People would bring him, it says, and lay him there daily at the gate of the temple called beautiful so that he could beg for arms from those who were going to worship. What a life. His wasn't much of a life, I fear. That poor man had been lame from the womb. And he'd lived dependent on others, dependent on them to carry him, dependent on them to care for him, dependent on them to contribute to him. It seemed he was always dependent on others. And he will have grown up as an outsider in an able-bodied world, just sitting 
and watching the world go by, the world living, it would seem for him that he was always sidelined on the sidelines, never getting to run, never getting to play growing up with the other children. I read a diversity champion this week, Susan Hampshire, and she said this, it's a lonely existence to be a child with disability. And here he is, a man, but every day, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, it never got better for him, living with this crushing disability that he had. And here he is, now an outsider, and he's still on the edge, he's still sidelined, he's still watching, he still doesn't get to participate. He is observing others walking into the temple to worship in a place he is not permitted, according to the law, to enter. You see, in a first century agrarian manual labor Middle East society, if you can't walk, you can't work. And there were no social services to look after him. It was beg or die. And here he is. Someone took pity and every day carried him and dropped him and left him when they went into worship. And there he just repeats this mantra, any arms for the poor, have pity on me. We're told this indignity is daily. The text underlines this. Daily this happened, day in, day out, week in, week out. The monotony of this indignity that he had to endure. Carried and left to beg at a gate to the temple. Hand outstretched. Can anybody help me? Tugging at people's consciences of the few who are willing to put their hand in their pocket for him. The fact is no one has ever wanted to grow up lame. No one. No one's ever wanted of their own choice, their own freedom, their own volition to be lame and to be a beggar. Who wants a life like that? To be dependent on others and to us strangers for help, to be left, to be propped against a wall, and to beg for bread from strangers, ignored by passers-by, disdained and judged by some, interrogated by others. And the text implies in the verbs that he asks for arms without even looking up. It's not until Peter says, look at me, that he looks up. His head, I think, is just down in the mud, down in the sand, down on the ground, in shame, nothing to lift it up for, not expecting anything. Can somebody help me today? The worst thing is not his actual disability. It's the spiritual consequence that came with it then. He can't go into the temple. Not allowed, no lamer let in. Specifically in the book of Leviticus, he can't go in. So he can't go where others go. He can't worship with others. He can't 
pray with others. He can't offer sacrifices of devotion to God. He cannot offer a sacrifice for sin. He cannot hear a priest pronounce forgiveness. What a miserable, painful, tormented, tortured existence he is enduring. He lived with questions on top of all that. Why me? What did I ever do wrong? What did I do in the womb to have to be born like this his whole life? Why me? Does God hate me? Listening this week to one of my fave bands, R.E.M., they've got a great track. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Everybody hurts sometime. This guy hurts all the time. Some people hurt all the time. And he was hurting. A pitiful man, dear man, at the gate, beautiful. That's the first thing. We often read these things so quickly that we miss what's there. And we need to slow down and see it and try and experience something of that. Secondly, the invisible man was visible to God. Yes, he was. Verse 4, Peter and John looked intently at him and said, look at us. Why did Peter and John stop? Well, they have only recently been filled with the Spirit of God. And for three years, they've been journeying with the Son of God. And they've learned a thing or two. They've inculcated, inculcated a thing or two. And they know that if you follow Jesus, you stop for the one. You pay attention to the one. And they'd learned from their master to give attention to this one. And the Spirit prompted them. Most folks going in the temple through the gate, they're just too busy doing their religion to see and register and acknowledge and have time for this poor outcast. But, you know, I think God would rather we take time to talk to others about him than bypass others to go and talk to him. Clearly in this story, it's more important that the apostles take time to talk to this one rather than go and talk to God. And Peter is prepared to be interrupted. This is important. He's prepared to be, to stop in his tracks, to take a breath, to step back, to ask God, what are you doing? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do right in this minute for this one? He's not just going. He had plans to go up to the temple and pray, but the plans have been interrupted. I loved hearing what Chloe had to say on that video. She's at a gym. She's working on her body. I actually went to a gym once <laughs> in February 1986. I remember I went there. And I thought, what am I doing here? And I haven't been back since. But she was at the gym, and she's working out. She was doing stuff. She was working on But she was prepared to be interrupted because someone said, I'm not feeling too good. Ah, the one. Leave what I'm doing for the one. Pay attention to this. What are you saying, Lord? Go for it, says the Lord. Ooh. Many of Jesus' miracles were incidentals. They were just incidents almost as it were accidents. They, they weren't planned healing events. 
The, the scriptures make much of Jesus paying attention to the individual, stopping what he's doing, stopping where he's going, to pay attention and respond to the need of the one. I think, saints, if we want to see more of God at work, we've got to be more attentive to God at work. And often his, his agenda is not quite what ours is, and we've got to be prepared to just stop and slow. This is the Green Cross Code of Ministry. Stop, look, and listen, and then act. We've got to stop. Stop what we're doing. Stop where we're going. Just stop and look at the person before us and the situation before us and listen to God and listen to them and then move. Peter looks at him and he says, look at me. Look at me. Again, the sense there in the Greek is that the, the, the chap wasn't looking at anything. I think he's just looking down. He'd been looking down all his life and had a lot to look up for. And here is this connection that is being made with Peter and this dear man. And there is a sense of recognition and of affirmation. There's a kind of constituting of him. Look at me. He's not barking out an order. Look at me. The chap lifts up his head. And they meet face to face, eye to eye. You'll know that Zulu greeting that says, I see you. And the response is, and I am here. The sense that I am validated. I'm now a person, recognized as a person to you, given worth. One charity working with disability states, the worst thing about a disability is that people see it before they see you. And for so many, this man is not a man, he's an it. Just there. But Peter, look at me. He's not an it. He's not his condition. He is a person. Peter cares. And so Peter stares. He's not voyeuristic looking at the condition. He's honoring him as a person, not a project, not a problem to be solved, a person. Look at me. One of my favorite verses in Scripture says, Jesus looked at him and loved him with the rich young ruler. It only says it once, but we know he did it all the time. Every look was a look of love from the Lord. One of the great healing evangelists in the history of the church is, was a chap, he was a plumber from Bradford called Smith Wigglesworth, Pentecostal guy. And uh, he was renowned for extraordinary miracles, particularly in Scandinavia. And uh, he said this, it is as your heart goes out to the needy ones in deep compassion that the Lord manifests his presence. This isn't mechanistic look at me. He's not just following the, the handbook on how to heal. Look at me. This is a man filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is a spirit of compassion, and he's looking. Look at me. He sees him. He honors him. He feels for him. Pity, compassion. His heart goes out to him, and now things are ready for the power of God to flow through him. And that brings me to my third point. The gate of heaven is opened at the gate beautiful. So as Peter stops and stares and cares, 
The Spirit of God prophetically, I think, instructs Peter. It's as he looks that God speaks to him and says, heal him. I'm going to heal him now through you. And then Peter says something amazing. He says, dude, he says, he might not have said that, but he says, that was for our Californian friends who are listening online. <laughs> he says, silver and gold have I none. It's not that Peter didn't have any change that he could spare. He didn't have anything in his pocket. He was skinned. And not for the first time. Jesus had to work a miracle with a coin and a fish once before when there was no money around. And just consider for a minute, if he had had money to give, he probably would have. And then maybe there wouldn't have been a miracle. There's an old story. I don't know if it's true, but it's told the Pope was sat at his desk and he was counting all this gold that was there. Probably not true. And in came the great Western theologian, Thomas Aquinas. And the Pope says, see, Thomas, we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas responds, yes, Father, but nor can we say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And maybe sometimes our lives are just so insulated by stuff that we're so dependent on stuff. And it's right that we are, are giving away materially and practically and so on. But so often we're so insulated that actually there's not room for God to work a miracle. He didn't have out else to give except God. Brother Yun, who was a remarkable Chinese pastor, imprisoned and tortured for his faith for many years, saw many miracles. He said this, in the West, you have no need. You've got insurance for everything. In many ways, you can do without God. Interesting. Anyway, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter and Chloe made this point on the video. Doesn't work himself up into a religious frenzy. There's no kind of hocus-pocus. There's no raising of his voice. There's no shouting and pleading. There's no period of fasting and seeking God for more power to heal this person. Actually, he doesn't even pray, interestingly. He simply reaches out and gives what he's got. He gives God. Peter actually has no innate power of his own to heal. Peter's just in the place. Peter has that intimacy with God. Peter has that authority and that commission from God to wield the mighty name of Jesus and inviting and invoking Jesus into this situation. It's Jesus, and power flows into this lame man. It is staggering. The lame man got more than he asked for. With God, you always get more than you ask for. He wanted a few shekels so he could go and buy some bread. But instead, suddenly, the power of God courses through his being. Peter reaches out a hand. He probably wasn't needed, but he reaches out a hand and 
power flows, muscles that have never worked. The atrophy of these muscles, there's, a, there's another miracle that happens. Muscles suddenly come, sinews and tendons that have never worked begin working, and up he gets. And he is ready to go. We're told leaping and dancing and praising God. This is a mind blowing. It's mind blowing. This is what God has done. This is what God has done through his servant who is willing to invite God into the situation with compassion and faith. He's healed. And it's a life transformed. And he's never going to be carried again. Never going to be left at the gate beautiful again. He's never going to sit there with his head in the dirt and his hand reached out saying, can anyone give me arms for bread? And never again is he going to watch from the outside others going to worship. We're told he goes in through the beautiful gate because God, the beautiful one, has come down upon him outside. And he goes in leaping and dancing and praising God. The Greek actually piles on verbs so that you really get the point that there is motion and there is movement, whereas before he was just sat, crumpled and hurting. Brings me to my last point. Peter says, what I have I give to you. The question is, what have we got to give? Because that's, that's where the rubber hits the road in the story. Because we can believe it happened for them, then, there. The question is, what about us here now? Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. What have we got to give? Now, the apostles had a unique relationship with Jesus, and they had a unique commission, a unique mandate, but they were to teach the disciples to do everything that Jesus had commanded them. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do everything I've told you, which was what? To go and heal the sick and set people free, proclaim the good news. And the fact is God hadn't changed. His word hadn't changed. His kingdom hasn't changed. His plans haven't changed. His mandate hasn't changed. It's not like that God said, oh, one day in the 21st century, the things will be different, so I'm going to be different, so we'll do it different. We're reading the book of Acts because these things are normative for us today, or should be. And the reality is the church has always grown through healing of people outside of church. Catholic historian Professor Christopher Dawson wrote this, the conversion of Western Europe was achieved not so much by the teaching of a new doctrine, but by the manifestation of a new power. Power pitted against power. Pe power pitted against pagan power. And God's power, the kingdom power, the power of Jesus manifest through the church was demonstrably more powerful. And the pagans said, okay, we'll follow you. One study on the Chinese church in the late 20th century said that 90% of converts came to Christ as a result of healing. 90%. And 
A similar study uh, of a chap who was a Bible translator and missionary in Nepal for 30 years said 80% of converts come through healing. The power of God, active outside the temple, outside the church, bringing healing and bringing people into the church. And that's my own conviction. John Wimber said, the church is the learning place for the marketplace. And again, I love what Chloe had to say, praying in the gym, normal every day, just doing the stuff where we can, incidents and accidents in the incidental rhythm of life outside. And we're equipped here. God meets us here. But it's not for us for here. It's for there. Wherever you are this week, socially distanced and not touching and masks on and all of that, go for it. People are going to tell you that they're hurting. They're aching. They've got problems in their life. They've got pains in their body. They're facing these predicaments. And God is... You're gonna, you've got to stop, you've got to look, you've got to listen, and you've got to do something. I've been corresponding this week with an amazing chap called Giles Udi, who uh, is uh, the father-in-law of our wonderful curate, Will. He's actually a historian who specializes in the experiences in the Siberian um, camps under Stalin, the Siberian gulags, uh, in the furthest northern part of um, the Soviet Union, as was then. And I've been reading about this. I've been interested in it. We're, we're having an interesting chat. And here's a man, a meticulous scholar and uh, kind of public academic and intellectual, meticulous in his detailing of what happens. And I love reading this because I've been reading all about the misery that was going on in the gulags. I've been reading about this for months and thinking, Lord, where were you then? And I'm reading here about from... Giles, and he's telling me of all the miracles that he's, he's witnessed out there. This academic, this Donish chap, going there, in the middle of nowhere, absolutely frozen, minus 50, and seeing the kingdom of God come. Amazing things. Leukemia healed, kidney disease healed, chronic disabilities. I read and read and read, and I just thought, Lord, we need to see this. So I wrote to him, and I said, why you, why there? Why? And he replied, one word, hunger, theirs, and chronic need. He said, they heard that God had brought a man from a country thousands of miles away because he loved them. And that raised faith and hope. All I did was pray, and I was astonished at what God did. God wants to use you to do extraordinary things in unlikely places, in situations that seem to have no resolution. He wants to use you this week, and I believe he also wants to meet you personally this week. The band are coming up. Let me just finish with this. Healing took place at the gate beautiful. The gate beautiful, that's what Scripture tells us. Except there was no gate called beautiful in the temple. There were some amazing gates, the Corinthian gate, the Nicor gate, and so on, but there was no gate beautiful. And in no ancient witness, Josephus and whatnot, no one 
recognizes, speaks about, says there was a gate called beautiful because there was no gate called beautiful. So why, when we read this, is it called beautiful? I've been thinking about this with the Lord this week, and I felt maybe it's this. Could it be that this gate, which was just a gate, ever thereafter is called the gate beautiful because it was the place that was a gateway for the beauty of God to come and do a beautiful thing. And ever thereafter, it moved from, from being, oh, this was where God did a beautiful thing, but 30 years down the line when the story's writ, this is the beautiful gate. And I wonder, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if St. Aldate's was called a beautiful church? Because God opened the gateway of heaven and did more beautiful things here. And it almost became an adjective to describe us as a community, this as a church.